Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we continue our mentorship journey where we help one of our listeners workshop the pilot from inception to final draft. And once again, we are joined by our mentee, Ben Warner. Welcome, Ben. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for being with us as always. And uh, this week is the next step in uh, the series, step number five. As we take a look at Ben's revised draft of his one-hour drama pilot, The Pirate King, which you can read at paperteam.co slash 204. Let's get started. Uh, as always, a quick recap of what's going on here with the mentorship. Our goal is it for it to be a monthly workshop where we help uh, a writer who we've selected as our mentee to create a new original TV pilot script from the inception of the idea all the way through to the final draft and what happens next. So in our previous 2020 mentorship episode with Ben, we have gone from this concept to the story beats to the outline all the way through to the rough first draft of his script, The Pirate King. And this week, we're going to be taking a look at the revised draft, incorporating all the notes that we gave last session. And if you want to hear Ben's thoughts on going from the first draft to this revised draft, as well as all the challenges that he faced, you can take a listen now to our Patreon-exclusive episode where uh, he tackled all these questions and more, and that's at paperteam.co slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And uh, as uh, we always say, we want this process to be as interactive as possible with all of you people listening at home or wherever you are, hopefully at home, actually. And so we would love your thoughts, feedback, interactions, etc. via email, Twitter, our Facebook group, uh, etc. Especially as we are closing out this 2020 mentorship with uh, Ben, we would really love uh, your thoughts, your questions about this process, your feedback on his pilot or just the mentorship as a whole and you can always do that at ask at paperteam.co all right let's dig into ben's revised draft for the parking and uh, first of all uh, you talked a, a lot about this on your update ben but can you talk us through the process of revising that first draft i know it was a bit uh, difficult yeah, it was trickier than I thought it was going to be. I had to go and listen through the podcast, and I kind of took it one note at a time and tried to address them as they came. But really finding that the middle ground was difficult for me, where sometimes I felt like I overcorrected. Sometimes I felt like I didn't go far enough to address the notes. It was a lot more difficult than I expected it to be. Yeah, I mean, I guess we just want to say first up that I think there's some really great changes in there. A lot of stuff is really tightened up and felt clearer and stronger in general. So just overall, really good job going through to the revised draft here. Definitely. Yeah, it is really tough to sometimes collapse scenes together and still make those work when you have uh, different elements put together. And I definitely agree with Nick that you pulled it off here where a lot of the scenes that we talked about last time uh, felt a bit stronger. Now, obviously, there's a couple of moments here or there that we're going to dig into. But overall, a lot of great updates and uh, essentially collapsing of scenes that made it much tighter and much more effective. Well, that's good to hear, because like I said, that was my major concern. And I'll, it's so hard to really be a, an honest self-evaluator, especially because I can be overly critical on myself. Um, I think a lot of writers kind of have the same feeling where, your ego is like either out of control or just absent and you're just like down in the dumps about stuff. So kind of trying to find that middle ground, be honest about your work can be difficult. So it's nice to get your guys' opinions. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the bigger picture things that we wanted to just kind of cover up front as a bit of a general discussion was the tone. Last time we talked a lot about those kind of you know, the Batman sensibilities of is he going to be straight up murdering people? Is he going to be trying to uh, resolve things in more of a nonviolent way or that sort of thing? You know, where did you end up landing on that overall in terms of this uh, scale between Pirates of the Caribbean and like Game of Thrones? It feels like it tilted more towards Game of Thrones. It is a little bit grittier. Well, I mean, there's still humor in there to kind of cut it. I don't remember if I said this in the first episode or not, but I think like a totally perfect movie, the kind of my wheelhouse is Raiders of the Lost Ark. So there's levity, there's humor even in the action, but Indy's still killing Nazis, you know? So I don't think I went as light as Raiders, but yeah, I guess it, it tilted a little bit more towards Game of Thrones. That's interesting that uh, you say that. I definitely felt as I was reading the script that it kind of treaded that line between the Game of Thrones angle and the Pirates of the Caribbean angle, because on one hand, you do have, especially when you look at action set pieces, a lot of, let's just say, gory set pieces with the gory sequences there. But at the same time, a lot of those moments are also peppered with that Pirates of the Caribbean comedy almost. And so... Personally, there were moments where I wasn't quite sure the tone you were landing, and you just brought up Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, Raiders does tread that line carefully in that I, you mentioned that uh, Indy obviously kills some people, etc., but it's still relatively PG or PG-13. In fact, wasn't that the movie, one of the movies where they had to invent a, a rating between PG and R? But uh, anyway, whilst I agree there's some comedy, it, it felt sometimes a bit out of place in some scenes. I mean, there is face-melting in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but uh, yeah, I think <laughs> overall, generally the vibe is a little bit kind of uh, brighter and, and lighter. And I think you, you kind of get away with doing whatever you want to Nazis without that being a uh, thing. So in terms of the, the tone, what kind of like network or streaming service would you see this living on? Or is there uh, maybe a TV show comp that's it's a little bit closer to? Something that I love that's also sort of walks that line between being a full out comedy sometimes and then being extremely violent is The Boys on Amazon, which I'm a huge fan of. So any streaming service, because they all seem to be able to get away with a little bit. I mean, it's probably not greedy enough for like an HBO. It's not Deadwood or quite Game of Thrones. So sort of like that, the boys type Amazon tone. Yeah, I think that's a great comp. The Boys is an awesome show, and I think that they do walk that line of kind of, they can get really brutal sometimes, but there's also uh, quite a bit of levity and humor in there, and part of that I think is due to the, the satirical nature of it. Right, but to that point, The Boys is a satire, and you mentioned Indy a second ago with the face melting, but the face melting is not directly Indiana Jones melting people's faces in the same way that the gruesome one-to-one element is not quite there in Indy. But with that said, The Boys, I agree, is an awesome comparison to look out for. And especially as a pirate show, I feel like the risk is veering too much on one end or the other without truly making it feel like it belongs in that tone. And what I mean by that is Pirates of the Caribbean is essentially a light romp throughout. It's like a fun part movie, but it doesn't really dig uh, skin deep or more than skin deep rather. Whereas this show, a lot of the issues that we talked about, especially in terms of the, the female characters and so forth, there's a lot of depth there to explore and a lot of depth there also with Jean 
and his legacy and all those issues where because those issues are relatively serious and real and uh, are embedded within a historical context, I feel it's not quite the same way as even Indiana Jones, which is basically a shout out to the 1930s serials and The Boys, which is a superhero movie or a superhero show rather. And that's not really ingrained in history per se. It's a satire on Trump and so forth. But this show is embedded within history, which we've talked about a lot. So that's definitely uh, something to watch out for in terms of the blending of genres and trying to navigate that in a way that is cohesive throughout. Yeah, I think you guys make some good points. Um, That's probably something I'm going to have to go back into on another pass. It does seem like it probably should be tilted harder towards the Game of Thrones side of things. So uh, maybe I'll take out some of the comedy beats and just kind of clean things up to that end. Yeah, and I'm honestly a big proponent of having levity and humor and even the most gritty and dark kind of stuff. So I would say don't go too crazy pulling out, you know, any comedy and everything. But I think it's just about setting up the audience's expectations, you know. In Game of Thrones, we know that always at any point around the corner, there could be some brutal death of a character that you love. And so you're kind of sitting there dreading what could happen next. And then the writers have set that expectation for you. Whereas in Pirates of the Caribbean, you know that Jack Sparrow is always just going to escape every situation unharmed uh, and get out of it. Okay. So I think a lot of it is, you know, what are the consequences that can happen? Right. And, and a lot of that feeling of stake comes in part through the characters, the way we perceive them acting. And so this is something we talked about before, but if Sean just suddenly murders someone in cold blood, that doesn't necessarily fit the character, or it could, you know, it could go either way. But as long as those choices are conscientious and deliberate for all the characters, and that their actions speak to who they are, as well as what the show is, that's important. All right, let's dig into the script. And uh, speaking of characters, uh, one sort of like semi-macro note I, I did want to mention at the top, especially because in the teaser we're introduced to a few characters, is that I thought a few of those characters were missing descriptions or introductions. I'm not sure if this is from the first draft or this draft, but first of all, there were some ages missing for some characters and not others, especially our lead character doesn't have an age, but other people who are more secondary do have an age. And then on scene 22, this is a bit jumping the gun, but just on the character description side, Louise and Agwe uh, do not have descriptions. So uh, I do feel it is important, especially for the leads, to be clearly defined in their introduction in the prose. Yeah, that might have been something that I missed just from how I reshuffled things so many times from just like the outline and stuff. So yeah, I'm gonna, I'll have to go back there and, and add some uh, character descriptions for sure. Yeah. Do we want to jump into the, uh, the first scene in the teaser? All right, yes. So let's jump into the teaser as a whole. And uh, personally, I really love the teaser. You did a lot of changes in terms of collapsing scenes and making things much clearer. And so the execution really paid off. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that it's a, it's a lot tighter. I like the dynamic, too, between the characters more. I think you really just kind of lifted up the teaser quite a lot. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Uh, you know, the teaser, I think, was just a, a few small, simple changes, but I'm glad to hear that it landed. Absolutely. I would say the two, the, these are really tiny notes, but I would just say one element that was missing for me in uh, around, I want to say, scene seven, when the betrayal happens, is in the prose, I wanted to land it much more emotionally and much more dramatically and stronger when Mauricio betrays Jean, because as it stands, it's a bit fast where we understand intellectually what happens. Mauricio is very clear. Mauricio betrayed Jean, but uh, Jean doesn't have that moment where he just sees his world crumble before his eyes before he gets hurtled overboard. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking at it right now, and I think you're right that 
it does feel like there's just one beat, maybe even just one line that's missing there. Yeah, I think that the the structure of it is absolutely correct. And the, the way that it kind of plays out, it's just letting that moment sink in and giving us a little bit more time with it and feeling the emotion of it will uh, will help. But otherwise, I thought that you really clarified a lot of the situation. Last time in the last draft, it wasn't entirely clear if Mauricio was just sort of surrendering to the pirates. But here, I think it's very clear that he's betrayed them. and It was intentional. So I think that was all a lot better. Agreed. Yeah, that's definitely hard to pull off when you have a lot of moving pieces where you're introducing new characters and then introducing their relationship with each other and their relationship with other characters betraying the the first characters. So uh, that was a, a good teaser. Yeah, and uh, moving on from the teaser to the kind of next section uh, as we go to New Orleans, obviously you pulled a lot of stuff out there in terms of him being on this boat with the captain, jumping off, swimming through the bayou, all the stuff that was in those previous drafts. And, you know, while on the scene level, I did like those scenes themselves. I think that they weren't necessary to the story because as they got pulled out here and he arrived in the city earlier, it did felt to me like it worked and it was just so much tighter and easier to get into the action and the, the meat of the story. I definitely agree. Yeah. The introduction of Bernard here in a very quick way, as well as getting to the meat and potatoes of Jean being confronted with new New Orleans is much more effective there. Uh, just to focus on scene nine, which is the Bernard scene for a second. As I was reading the pilot, I realized a couple of things. Uh, the first thing that I realized was that Bernard's name is never said out loud until much, much later when Jean says it for the first time. And then after that, when it's revealed that he took the name from Bernard. So one small moment that I would want to land in that scene is we hear Bernard's name and we make the connection that this guy is named Bernard Dupont or Mr. Dupont, whatever you want to call him, just so that we make the connection and you don't have to spell it out, you know, necessarily when Jean says his name is Bernard Dupont, but at least we, the audience, when we're reading it, when we're watching the show, we get an understanding out loud that this guy's Bernard. Yeah, uh, I think at one point Jean does say his first name, but I could tell, totally see the value of saying his last name as well. It's it's like near the end of scene nine, halfway through page six there. But yeah, I think if I can add the last name without like kind of making it feel shoehorned, then that'll definitely pay off better in the uh, ballroom scene. Yeah. And all you really need to get across is that this guy is called uh, Mr. Dupont, really, because I think that's the main name that we remember from the next scene. But the second thing that I wanted to mention, and this is like a soft pitch, is I would remove Bernard calling him captain. And I don't know exactly the logistics of, you know, how that would work in terms of their seniority and so forth. But Jean should not be captain until maybe the end of the episode, because that's what he loses in the teaser. That's his legacy. That's what he stands for. And so many more things behind that. But just the weight of the title of captain is not just something that is given like that. And so if his entire legacy is lost out of Mauricio's betrayal in the teaser, then I would pitch that the title of captain is not given to Jean Tell much later in the episode. I think that's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, to, to really strip everything from him, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, I agree on that. And I think this might be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but I think Alex had a pitch that, yeah, right near the very end of the episode. Oh, you just spoil it. Don't spoil it. <laughs> okay, right, yeah, yeah, we'll pull right, that right, out then. All right. We won't get ahead of ourselves then. We'll pull that out. Uh, I have something to look forward to now. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. One last note on scene nine is at the end when they arrive in New Orleans, I would just emphasize New Orleans in the prose because this is really the first time we're seeing New Orleans, that this is going to be the setup for our show. New Orleans is the fifth character of this entire show. So really honing that down in the moment where Jean is back home on the ship, seeing his home city, his hometown, uh, that should really be emphasized. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, I can, that's something I could definitely do. I like these easy fixes, guys. Just keep these ones. Wait a second. The next scene is that. Oh, yeah. And everything after this, scrap it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So then after this, it's basically page nine rewrite. <laughs> <laughs> So the next note we have was just on the scene where he arrives back to uh, what was once his hideout and is now a bar and sees his brother at the very end of scene 12 there. I think we both felt that we wanted a little bit more out of the reaction of the brother. You mentioned that he kind of goes white and it's like he's seen a ghost, but uh, I don't know, that beat almost felt a little bit incomplete for me. Like again, I guess like with the betrayal with Mauricio, we wanted to let it sink in a little bit more, catch the reactions of both of them, get that real sense of emotion there, seeing his long lost brother and not blowing through that. I definitely concur. And I remember on the update, you mentioned how this was one of two scenes that were extremely difficult to sort of portray that emotion. So I don't know if you can speak more to how you approach that brother scene. Yeah, um, because you guys had a lot of notes about sort of trying to establish a more clear dynamic between the two and maybe hints of what their past dynamic had been and how things had changed. So that was certainly one of the more difficult things uh, because I didn't want to overhaul the whole scene and there's obviously a lot of exposition that needed to happen. It's sort of like trying, you know, like you get a set of Legos and you just have to reconfigure them. You have the same exact pieces, you need to have a whole different result. So it was it was difficult. I really kind of just ended up warming up their dynamic a little bit, especially Pierre towards John, because it was a little cold and standoffish in the first pass. And and then I, that kind of almost felt like it was repeated with Louise. So I wanted to have very different dynamics between those two scenes. So yeah, it, it, that's kind of what was going through my mind when I was reworking it. Yeah, well, I did actually like the dynamic between the brothers as we move into that kind of scene 13 area there. I thought that that was nice. It felt a little more authentic to me, a little more brotherly and uh, kind of interesting and dynamic. So I think that once you got on into that scene, it worked well for me. It was just that moment where he first sees him. I just wanted a little bit more there. Right. Yeah, I would say there's two sort of separate thoughts here. Uh, there's the scene 12, quote unquote, note or thought there that Nick mentioned where you're essentially cutting away from the emotion that Jean has uh, and uh, Pierre has vis-a-vis -vis, you know, each other. And so cutting away from that, robbing us from that moment or underplaying it, it doesn't feel quite right. Because especially, you know, linearly in the episode, this is the first time Jean is truly interacting with someone he knows from his old life, really. So that is such a huge moment that scene 12 is really, the emotion there, the interaction is really important. Scene 13, the emotion, the interaction between brother really played well. I really, really liked a lot of the changes that you made there, especially, as you said, to keep it distinctive from the scene with Louise. I thought those two scenes really contrasted well with each other. My one thought on that scene was that the dialogue still felt a bit expositionary. And in my mind, that's because, as you, I guess, just mentioned, you were trying to move uh, Lego pieces around and, and reforming it as opposed to uh, letting the emotions dictate the pacing. And what I mean by that is, in this scene, as you also have it, uh, Pierre wants to keep Jean home while Jean wants to go and kill Mauricio and go to Barataria. You're still uh, navigating the fact that you want Pierre to reveal exposition about uh, Mauricio, the fact that Mauricio told stories about Jean and so forth. Whereas if you just preserve it where, you know, it's Jean focused on Mauricio 
and maybe his legacy, but he doesn't quite know at that point that it's Mauricio. Pierre is much more like he, he's almost withholding all this information because he knows that if he tells, you know, if he gives him any more ammo, then uh, Jean is really going to triple down on Mauricio and so forth. Whereas Pierre is almost diverting him from uh, his mission right now because he just found his brother again. So that way, if you're really focusing on Pierre withholding information and Jean is much more on the, you know, on the offensive, then you can navigate it so that you don't have those sort of awkward, sharp turns where you know you're trying to get across and Mauricio is the one that's telling stories about it and, and the focus is much more about Jean lost his legacy and Jean's trying to get Mauricio but you don't necessarily need to connect those two pieces I think even intrinsically if we were just watching the show we get that Jean was betrayed and, and Jean and everybody else moved on so people would assume that there's negative stories and then the weight of Mauricio is the one who told those fake news is going to come much later at a much more important moment but this is much more of a brother moment between those two. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, like I said, that whole scene was the one probably I struggled with the most. So that, yeah, I think I'll go back and kind of make some tweaks still there. Yeah, I think oftentimes when you're kind of writing through drafts, it's better to have it in there first and then realize that maybe you don't need it and start to pull that stuff away and uh, just kind of feed the audience as much as they need and, and find the right places for it to come out later. Absolutely. And I would say that this is the, the kind of show where less is more. You have a lot of characters in several scenes that kind of exposit on their plans or their thoughts, but ultimately the emotion is there. If you just kind of take a lot of it out, I think a lot of it will shine through, especially for example, in this Jean and Pierre scene, you know, Nick and I felt that emotion between those two brothers. So if you remove sort of the expositionary elements or underplay those in, in different ways, then you get sort of that beautiful brother scene, for example, and the same with other scenes that we're going to talk about later. Yeah, I see where you guys are coming from. I think I just need to learn to maybe trust the reader and trust the audience more that they're going to pick up things. And yeah, like you said, focus more on the emotion of it. Yeah, and I don't recall if this was in the previous draft or not, but I did really like that you started to seed in the kind of like, this is your second chance for, you know, for a clean start kind of idea here that's going to pay off at the end of the episode. Yeah, I, th I think that is something that came in, in this past for sure, really to um, kind of hammer down the, uh, the legacy aspect of it and the redemption and Second chances and all that, it all ties together for me. All right, let's move on to scene 15, the interaction with the pirates and the action sequence that follows. So a couple of thoughts on that scene. Similar to actually the observations I mentioned last time, the first one is I still wanted more specificities between each pirates. And I think you try to get across some elements of dynamic, especially with the Foster character. But I was actually confused if Foster was meant to be in the teaser because he says that he was there when Jean got betrayed. So I'm not sure if it's suggested that he was present in the teaser or not. So I'm not sure where you stand there. Yeah, that might be a little bit of a holdover from the first draft because in the first draft when Mauricio kind of betrays Jean, there's still a crew of pirates with them. And I never picked out Foster as being one of them, but that was sort of my implication. In the reworked version, I don't think I mentioned that there's more pirates with Mauricio. So that might just be a logical error on my end. So I'll have to go through and clean up because I think there's probably a couple things like that throughout the draft where I just I missed a piece from the first to the second draft that I just need to clean up. Yeah, I'm actually not mad that, you know, he was there in the teaser, as long as he's emphasized in the teaser, because I actually think it lands better that he was there in the teaser, because at the end of the sequence, Jean kills Foster, right? And so with a signature weapon. So I think that moment really, really lands that 
we really see, if you really highlight the animosity that Jean feels, the justified anger that he has towards all those people that betrayed him, most of all Mauricio, but I can't get Mauricio right now. I got you. And right now you're going to die. And that way you do avoid a little bit of that part of the Caribbean light stuff that sometimes works. But in that moment, I feel like that was a moment where I wanted much more emotions as opposed to quirky things happening. And especially because you have the horrific deaths, you know, all the, all those action set pieces are not pretty in terms of, you know, <laughs> they're, they're not good deaths. And so because of that, I want the emotion, I want, you know, it's sort of like a uh, Jean Hulk mode right now where he's trying to get Mauricio. Well, I mean, he's not getting Mauricio, he's getting Foster. And you do have that piece where he's like, I'm sorry, captain. I swear I didn't want to betray you, Mauricio. And then he still kills him. Right. And so that moment is so important to establish that Jean is willing to go through anybody. Yeah. And I think if we're kind of getting onto this thing of who's calling him captain and if not, does he get called captain in this scene by any of the pirates? He does. Foster, I think, calls him. Right. Yeah. If that's something we're going to track all the way through and deny him his captainhood until, you know, later on, then perhaps that's something where, you know, maybe (laughs) he's insisting, you know, I am your captain. Like, no, you're not kind of thing. Um, A little bit more there. Right. I could see that. Yeah. Kind of similar to um, the first, uh, the Bernard thing, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I do like that you saved the kind of Mauricio reveal until the very end of the act there. I think it's a good act break moment. One really bigger picture thing, and it might even be a can of worms that we don't particularly want to open, but I thought I'd bring it up anyway, is that the focus on Barataria and coming in and trying to get there and running into these pirates and running into all the traps and everything in the pilot episode, and then the fortress that he actually assaults later in the episode is Marie's separate fortress. feels like a little bit of a, uh, kind of like a Chekhov's gun thing to me. It's like we set up Barataria as the place he wants to claim back, and he tries to go there earlier on in the script, and then he goes and assaults a completely separate fortress. I don't know what the solution to that is. It just feels like a bit of a disconnect to me that like we're setting up one thing and then going off and doing a completely different fortress that's similar but different uh, with a different person. So I don't know if that makes any sense to you guys, but I don't know if there's some way to rework Barataria back in the pilot somewhere where he's like thinking that he might just turn the ship around and assault Barataria with these men instead of Marie, or just something to connect those two ideas. That's interesting. In my mind, I I feel like I I didn't feel that disconnect, but I think it's because in my mind, Barataria to me doesn't feel like it's a whole voyage in the same way that Marie's fortress feels like a voyage because we're on a ship and we're going somewhere with a crew. Whereas here is just people almost, not literally, but almost walking down the street and going somewhere. At least that's what it feels like because we cut away from Pierre and Jean chilling in the bar to this island without really tracking that voyage. But I definitely hear you in terms of those two uh, locations. Yeah, I think that's interesting. That's that's certainly something that I wouldn't be able to come up with. There's no quick fix for that one. I think that I, I'm I'm going to stew on that a little bit, though. Yeah, I wouldn't stress too much about it. It's just sort of the notion of like you're introducing two fortresses in the one episode and one's clearly more important to him, but you end up assaulting the other one. So, yeah, I don't really know if there's a clean fix for that or not. I think it could be softened in, and and we'll get to that uh, later, but just that scene between Jean and Jacques where those priorities get realigned where we get a better sense of to get to Barataria, he needs to get to Marie and that fortress, etc. And clarifying that this, like, even if he took the boat and ran with it, it would not work. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, one, one to steal on for the longer term, but no immediate need to <laughs> pull everything out just to make that thought work. And just one last thought about that sequence of with the pirates. Uh, it felt a bit weird for me, uh, kind of like last time where Jean would just cut and run, leaving his brother to die potentially with the enemy. 
as opposed to at least having some cool brother team up moment there to really emphasize that bond that they have. Even if it doesn't work, maybe they do a thing and then Jean runs and and Pierre already forgot because it's been years and years since they did the thing. Yeah, I remember that was a note from last time. I think I'm going to do more passes on this. I think that's something I'm still going to work in. I feel like I just didn't get to it this time. I I couldn't sort it out at the time in the moment. Yeah, for sure. Especially if you want to include the notion of like, you're not going to do this alone and I've got your back. I think it would be helpful for, uh, for Jean to have his brothers back there too. All right. Now let's jump all the way into act two and Louisa's introduction. And uh, just a reminder, as I mentioned at the top, this is the moment where I personally really wanted more prose description of uh, Louise and Agwe. That just feels almost like a, I just had an airhead moment there and didn't do it. So I'll, that's for sure going to be something I address. Yeah, so moving uh, just one more forward over to scene 23, when uh, Jean and Louise first see each other, um, just I guess like a bigger picture note here before we get into the smaller details. It's a very long scene. It's almost like five pages. Uh, I feel like that we could perhaps tighten some stuff in there. And, and it does feel a bit exposition-y at times, similar to how uh, it felt with uh, the brothers scene and getting the information out that we need to know. And a lot of it did feel more in service to perhaps the plot than it did to uh, an emotional truth of their relationship. Yeah, I definitely agree. I, I did like a lot of the changes that you made in terms of the emotion that Louise was feeling, but uh, kind of similar. I mean, it, it's a contrast to Pierre, but I feel like both of those characters should be withholding information from Jean. And Pierre's reasoning is, as mentioned before, because he wants his brother here. Louise's reasoning, in my mind, is because assuming the fake news took hold, she probably fears Jean. She's probably heard horror stories about Jean. She may or may not believe them, but she hasn't seen the guy in a long time. And so, especially given those horror stories, I kind of wanted her to be much more, not necessarily quiet, definitely not quiet, but at least more subdued in the way she gives information to Jean, as opposed to Jean earning that trust back and showing that he's there for his own reasons. And I think there could be some miscommunication there because obviously Jean is here to kill a guy and Louise is, you know, looking at him being like, well, okay, I've heard all these horror stories about how terrible of a person you are and you come here after five years and you're telling me all about how you want to kill this dude that I kind of know. Uh, so <laughs> you're going to go kill my friend. <laughs> <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. I, right, I about totally get Louise what, yeah, I get what you guys are saying. I think this sort of the next uh, little Passover I do on this. I think it's, I'm seeing a theme develop with these notes. <laughs> I think um, I need to really <laughs> just do like an emotion pass. And a lot of it, as uh, Nick mentioned, in terms of cutting the scene from five to whatever it is, is about w almost withholding that information. It's, it's that exposition that exists there doesn't necessarily need to be there because a lot of characters are almost stating what they want. In fact, I think in this very scene, I forget which line it is, but Jean literally says, I want this, I need this, as opposed to, you know, <laughs> the, the scene doing that work. But the emotions are there, right? The dynamic is there. There's a lot of cool stuff there between Louise and Jean. And it's really in my mind about playing up that tension between them, that sort of invisible wall that separates them, especially if it's something that Jean does not understand how to solve yet. Uh, all he knows, kind of, because of uh, Pierre, if you keep it vague, is that fake news has spread. Or alternatively, this is the time when he learns it. But either way, he is here to kill Mauricio, but he doesn't understand that his problem that he has to face 
is going to be much deeper than that. It's not, you know, you can kill Mauricio, but that's not going to solve your legacy problem. That's not going to solve you getting a crew. That's not going to solve, you know, your relationship with Louise. In fact, that could worsen it. Uh, all those little elements, all these threads uh, can be parsed in that scene without necessarily, you know, getting all the exposition about sort of the intellectual uh, part of that scene. Yeah, those are good points. And one really minor thing that I wanted to mention was just in terms of the wording of one particular sequence there. And she's like, there's no further need for it. I freed my father's slaves. And Jean says, you freed your slaves. And Louise says, I freed my father's slaves. I understand what you're going for there and her saying that I never had slaves, but it, I think it can be misread as she freed her father's slaves, but kept her slaves. Like, <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, that's definitely something <laughs> I want to avoid. Yeah, so I would just Yikes. reword that a little bit to make it clear that she's saying, like, I would never own slaves sort of thing, rather than I got rid of his slaves, but I've kept mine sort of thing. You really don't want that, that implication. Yeah, I would say Jean's question is the leading one there, where he's like, you freed your slaves, which implies that he knows she has or had slaves. Right, you could probably just cut that and say, there's no further need for it, I freed my father's yeah. slaves. Jean, why are you here, kind of thing. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And also one small note about the end of the scene, Louise opens a closet door and drags out a wooden trunk that Jean left here five years ago. So I'm a bit confused about if she's kept this trunk of his for literally years, that kind of needs to be addressed. Either Jean mentioning that, you know, she's kept it for years or maybe highlighting the fact that she's still holding on to him, even though she, as we learn later, has a relationship with Pierre. Something there about why she has, it doesn't have to be like a whole monologue, just like a one line or something, but shining a light on the fact that if she's still holding onto the trunk of Jean, that has huge implications, especially after five years, after all the fake news, after everything we've talked about. That makes sense. And I, that's something I can clear up a little bit. Yeah, because I kind of like the idea that somewhere, somehow in the back of her mind, she's still sort of you know, remembers him fondly. It's like, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of guys or girls out there that have old exes sweaters still in the closet somewhere. And that is absolutely the emotion that you know, you have the potential of, come, of, you know, making come across here where, right. you know, the bad version is Louis says you left this year five years ago, kind of like matter of fact. And Jean is like five years ago, huh? You've been holding this for five years, you know? Right. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I get you. All right. Let's now go into the ball sequence at Jacques estate. And uh, first of all, this is, uh, again, the Mr. DuPont thing that we mentioned earlier. Uh, if uh, you're going to introduce Mr. DuPont, then uh, Bernard or Jean, rather, should uh, say Mr. DuPont on the top, as we discussed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do have a question about him deciding to go as Bernard DuPont. To me, I, I wonder if that almost confuses things later when Bernard DuPont walks in. And, you know, he's like, this is the real Bernard DuPont, and you're clearly a traitor. But he already kind of knew that he was Jean Lafitte anyway, so he didn't need to have that element of you're impersonating someone like it would make sense if Bernard Dupont's name was on the invitation and that's why he had to go as Dupont and then there's that whole kind of thing and then they're like well who are you really wait a minute you're Jean Lafitte but it feels like they kind of already know he's Jean Lafitte so the Dupont thing just kind of adds an extra layer of complexity to me that maybe doesn't need to be there I don't know what your thoughts are on that Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but what you just said about the invite thing makes sense in that it could potentially introduce more questions than uh, needed. I mean, like I said, myself in my mind was establishing the, the bump that I had with that moment was just the fact that Bernard Dupont's name is not established. And so at that moment, we should the audience should know instinctively that he is taking the name of the guy that we saw earlier. But with that said, it is true that we're not seeing him for that long. So it could also be a uh, thing where Jean takes Louise's name because maybe Louise's family 
you know, is always invited to Shaq's ball. And so that is a quick one line establishing thing where you get in the Louis scene that to get to that ball, you need an invite or something like that. And that's why he pretends to be part of Louise's family or something. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole invitation thing makes sense. So if he did just say that, you know, he took Louise's brother's name or whatever we'll say. Yeah. I mean, that would be, um, Pretty much similar to how it was in the the first draft where it was just a random name that he just kind of came up with on the spot. So yeah, if, if having the whole Bernard connection causes more questions, then I don't I don't love it so much that I'd keep it around if it if it if people are hanging up on it. So alternative pitch: Do we need a Jean to say name here? Could he just say, "Oh, uh, fellow Mister Buff," then please, Mister, what was your name again? And Jean says, "I didn't say my name." Yeah, I mean, um, John could just blow him off. Yeah, right? and then that solves the problem. And then, <laughs> yeah, and you can still have the moment where Jacques says, uh, "Hey, what's up, Jean Lafitte?" Wait, what? Yeah, that's something that I, I'll I'll play around with that and probably just do like I'll probably just write out two full versions of that. I mean, it's not like it's that much work, and see which one just like hits me better. So both ways I think could work. Cool, great. Moving on to that, the end of that scene or towards the end, uh, I really loved the Mauricio Jacques interaction. I thought that was really well done. Well, it was your pitch. That's why you love it so much. It was. That's right. <laughs> I, lo- I love your writing of it. It's fine to be pitching ideas, but the execution is where it counts. The ideas are a dime a dozen. I'm talking specifically about your line about Jacques. You didn't use my line for Jacques. It was close. But I'm going to give you a little credit. <laughs> sure. <laughs> is this the Vlad the Impaler discussion or a different interaction? No, yeah. it's at the end. Uh, Mauricio, uh, you know, stabs a Remy, which I think was your pitch, Nick, originally. Yeah. Like, the waiter. And then Mauricio's like, yeah, clean this up, Jacques. And Jacques is basically like, if this were like a crappy a pirate ship, sure, but this is a fancy <laughs> estate. So, yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's a great spit. And so moments later, I did want, this is a, again, a slight tweak, but at the end of that scene, Jacques notices Jean's dagger. I would just keep alive that this is the ivory dagger or whatever his uh, signature weapon is just in the prose so that we get a call back that this is his weapon. Yeah. I almost had a pitch on that in the earlier pirate scene where he kind of killed the dudes and Mauricio showed up. I'm like, I was thinking, oh, what if he like left the dagger in one of them? And that's a hint to Mauricio that his back, but obviously you want him to keep the dagger so he can use it as a signature weapon. So I was just wondering if there was some way for, for Mauricio to be starting to piece these clues together. I think it was like the flags that he was kind of like looking at in that pirate scene where he's like, hmm, and, and piecing together perhaps Jean Lafitte is back. So I don't know if there's any way to connect those dots a little more cleanly between what is the inextricably Jean Lafitte thing that Mauricio was noticing both in that pirate thing and then the party that's allowing him to piece it together in his head. Yeah. Just like something more of like a calling card. I see where you're coming from. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to think about that. All right. Let's move on to the tarot sequence, the intercut sequence. So once again, I know I pitched it, but I really like what you did with the execution of that event. It's not easy to do that. It's one thing to just say, hey, you should do an intercut that is uh, emotionally interesting and thematically relevant to what's happening on screen. It's another thing to execute it, which you did. So I really, really like that. Yeah, I thought that worked really well, too. I I liked uh, the kind of parallels and stuff you've drawn between. I was curious, did you do some research into what each of the different tower cards means in particular? You know, I write all these scripts mostly because I like this kind of stuff already. I don't know a ton about tarot besides having like a cool little book on it, but I just kind of look at the pictures, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I just researched pretty surface level. Like what does this card mean? There's like uh, 22 like major cards or something like that. 
So I just picked from those because they had real easy to read Wikipedia pages. And then I just took the themes from uh, whatever felt relevant in the scene at the time and tried to find the most applicable card. But that's another one of those things where like, I'd really like to talk to somebody who like is into that stuff. You know, there's certain things like um, at one point, because like the fool card was a little confusing because it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a fool, but like if you place it upside down, then it has a different connotation. So I tried to kind of throw that in there too. Uh, but I'd like to talk to an expert, but, uh, but yeah, I did, I did a little bit of research. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one pitch I kind of had on that was the death card, like the whole idea with that, you know, as people see it in tarot readings and they freak out, because does that mean someone's going to die? And uh, I believe that the meaning of it is a little bit deeper than that. It, it's often about kind of like rebirth rather than death or, you know, the death of an old thing and the birth of something new. And I think that's really interesting to maybe tie into the theme that John's going through right now. So Louise could be like freaking out about getting the death card and being like, what does this mean? Uh, is someone going to die? Am I going to die? And Marie could perhaps deliver, you know, this doesn't always just mean death, it means, uh, you know, rebirth and new life and that kind of thing. And maybe that could come into uh, the themes of the show a little. You could play that dissonance if the tarot reader drops the death card and then, you know, she says rebirth or whatever the opposite. I mean, what instinctively we think it means death is the opposite or something like that, where we, you have that dissonance and then you see what's happening on screen with either the card and then Jean doing a thing or vice versa. Yeah, I like it. So in that sequence, I had a couple of thoughts and the minutiae of the pros and the way you navigate us from one scene to the other. A couple of tweaks in terms of the order of operation to drive that read forward. I would actually suggest, especially because we are cutting at the end of scene 25 from Jean going after Mauricio to a completely different location with at least one character we do not know yet to have an overlap or something of a visual cue that tells us that we're going to something else. That's why usually we have a cut to X scene, right? But obviously in this, in this version, in this format, you don't have that, which is fine. But then I personally would have liked something to overlap it. So, you know, the bad version is uh, you can overlap Marie's line at the end of scene 25 uh, to sort of suggest that intercut. Or maybe Louise is the one saying the lover, reading the card that's about to be displayed. So that way it's immediately we go from Jean overlapping the lover question mark and then cutting to the terror card. And then we kind of establish organically this is a tarot read metaphorically about Joe and other stuff, but then we get to see it play out as it is. Yeah, that was actually a thought I had too. So um, yeah, I think that's something I'm going to implement. And um, yeah, and I would also continue that through the other intercuts where either beginning the cut or ending it with a card, especially at the very end, the fool, for example, is like a great example of having the fool or death or whatever card you want as either the first image or the last image, as opposed to sort of buried in the prose, uh, just visually tracking that as the reader, I think makes a bigger impact than sort of, you know, having that word in the middle, even if it's, you know, in bold or uh, caps. Right. So we really know that's the last focus thing we're focusing on right, right before we get back to whatever Jean's doing. I, I get you. And one last thing that is also, I think, easier for the read to ease the read is I would just remove Marie Lovo's name here and just call her a tarot reader. We don't know who Marie Lovo is at this point. We don't need to know. This is information that 
burdens the reader. It's not something we really need to know. She's just a tarot reader. And then uh, much later, when Jean meets Marie Lovo for the first time, that's when you say, this is Marie Lovo, you know, whatever, Marie Lovo, this is the tarot reader that Louise Bavala, or whatever version of that. So at least you don't have to remember names uh, because there's a lot of names happening here. You have also Remy being introduced two pages prior. So navigating that, you know, just eases the read overall, I feel. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So on that note, I would say also a couple of moments, like I think scene 28, when uh, you have Remy waking up Jean, a little tweak there saying, you know, the bad version of, you know, it's Remy, the waiter uh, that Mauricio kicked in the guts of the party or whatever it is, just to remind us who Remy is, because that's an example of like a secondary, well, really tertiary character who's named. If, if it is for a reason, then we sort of need to connect the dot that, oh, it's this dude, just to kind of, again, ease the reader. I think that was another thing that um, I just I, that got left on the cutting room floor accidentally because originally, remember, Remy was in that scene with Mauricio and I introduced him. So oh, right. in the first draft, you kind of you he was established, but I just forgot to layer that aspect of it back in. So that that's a good point. I, that's just something I missed. I just wanted to say in the previous scene, 27, I really like the guy falling out of the window into the party. I think that's a really great yes. kind of a <laughs> action set piece. <laughs> That was good. All right, let's go to scene 28, which is another juicy, meaty scene between Jacques and Jean. A lot of the notes that I was saying that we were both saying, actually, uh, regarding the Louis scene and the Pierre scene, I feel still apply here, where you can cut down and parse away a lot of Jacques' dialogue, because he is one of those characters that kind of monologues a lot and gives a lot of logistics that we don't really need to know. Um, you can kind of get the bullet points here. Yeah, like I said, I, once I uh, once we got to the Louise notes, I'm like, okay, I I think I I think I need to just readdress a few of these scenes. Um, yeah, I, I got you. That makes sense. Yeah, one really small note I had there in the dialogue was that Jacques calling voodoo a barbaric religion. I think that we want to tread that line a little carefully because it could be perhaps culturally insensitive, even though it's from a character's point of view. I think if we either you want to go one way or another, lean into us understanding his point of view about voodoo? Is it that he is a, a devout Christian? Is it that he's into some other kind of spirituality that is very important to him? And as such, he thinks that this this particular religion is a perversion of it or whatever it happens to be. Otherwise, if it's just sort of uh, thrown out there, uh, you know, I just want to understand why he thinks it's barbaric and how that uh, contributes to the story and the dynamics between the characters and what he thinks about Marie as opposed to it just kind of being thrown out as a given. Yeah, I hear you. I think it was just sort of one another one of those like shorthand for bad guy moments where like he's going to bad mouth a religion. And mm -hmm. I think on a, like a deeper level, I mean, the dude's like maybe a vampire. So I think like <laughs> any spirituality to him is like, you know, you know, it's, typically it's the cross that freaks out vampires. But I think in this sort of world, if, if Jacques really is a vampire, it's like any religion is like the antithesis of what he is. So yeah. um, that that's kind of, what that was what I, what I feel about him, but I, obviously like not really layered in. That is super interesting. Where you're saying that you know his enemy is belief, it's faith, and so if you see that in that uh, anyone with belief is essentially against them, you can also play it either way. Where kind of like with the cross thing, are you? Just basically an atheist who hates religion, or do you hate crosses? Because literally, if I put a cross on you, you die. You know, like there's a difference here. Right. And so, but you can play that nuance of 
because you're already playing that nuance of, is he a vampire, is he not, et cetera, et cetera. You can play that nuance of, you know, what does he actually believe in? And if, if he believes in nothing, then what does that mean? Does he actually believe in nothing? Or does the belief, uh, other beliefs mean the end for him, if that makes sense? Right, right. Yeah, because I definitely feel like it's the latter. It is like, they are bad for him. Like, he, you know, he's anti them because they're anti him. But yeah, layering that in, I think would be interesting. Yeah, for sure. And I also think you can even have um, Jean calling him out a little bit and being like, oh, it's, you know, it's a little bit hypocritic of him to call something barbaric when he literally has like a painting of like people being impaled in his room or whatever. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. It's kind of oh, the pot going the kettlebell. I'm Lord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, he'd be like barbaric and then he would nod at the, <laughs> the holy yeah, gallery. Like right. Yeah. I know we don't technically see that image, I think, until a little bit later on the, that he has these images of people being impaled, but I did have like, I'll bring it up now. I did have like a logic question there. How are they being painted impaled? Are they impaled through the abdomen or are they impaled through the behind, like the, the argument <laughs> between the two of them? I think through the abdomen, because I think when you mostly see like paintings like that, it's norm- that's normally how it's done, even though the historical accuracy is like, I think, I think they, they did it both ways, I'm pretty sure. I just liked that, that kind of exchange. Um, gotcha. So, I'm not dead on accurate on the history there, but through the abdomen, definitely, especially because that's the point that he makes. So exactly. Maybe he's like staring at it being like, Hmm, maybe I need this changed. He's rethinking it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Second draft of the painting. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just to finish off on that Jacques Jean scene and to circle back to the dialogue, I was a bit confused by the motivation uh, that was happening here between Jacques and Jean uh, in terms of the order of operation that gets Jean to work for Jacques. And this is, again, the pitch that I briefly mentioned earlier with uh, Nick's thought on, you know, tying the Bartar's Island to Marie's place or whatever. I think this is definitely a location where you can clarify this is Jean's mission now. And uh, to get to this other mission, he needs to go there. And it's a side quest, uh, but still the side quest that's going to lead him to the goal. But all that is to say that I'd rather it be sort of Jacques manipulating Jean into getting what he needs. Jacques seems to be someone who thinks five moves ahead, right? And so what if the text layer here is basically you get Marie and you get your ship. What Jacques really wants is actually for Jean to kill Mauricio and the, in the process is getting Marie, obviously, but like that way he gets Mauricio out of it because he knows Jean is going to kill Mauricio, but Jacques is essentially leading Jean to the goal that he wants unbeknownst to him that Jacques also wants this goal. Okay. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm just trying to like work it out in, in my head a little bit. So more dangle the carrot of killing Mauricio. In my mind, like part of the the appeal is Jacques knows that Jean wants to kill Mauricio. And especially if this is the moment where Jacques reveals that Mauricio is the one who demolished his legacy, both literally by killing quote unquote Jean the teaser, but also by spreading fake news and so forth. You know, he can empathize in a way or fake empathize with Jean on that level. And lead him to do his bidding by, like you said, dangling the carrot potentially, but really reorienting Jean's goal to get Marie. Because Jean, uh, Jacques rather, is trying to manipulate Jean into doing his bidding, right? So on the surface level, sure, like it'd be cool to have a ship and a crew. But the real reason why he's doing it is to kill Maurice here, right? So Jacques knows, because he knows everything, that Jean's true goal isn't to get a, a ship. 
right? Jean's true goal is to, well, at least he thinks that his true goal is to kill Mauricio, maybe establish a new legacy, wherever you want to take that, you know, whatever you want Jacques to believe about Jean's true goals and true motives. But whatever Jacques believes is how he should be sort of setting things up, quote unquote, trapping, verbally trapping Jean into getting Marie basically by the end of this, as opposed to sort of this back and forth of expositing sort of the the mission and then Jean uh, not being into it or whatever, if that makes sense. Because it's, it's much more about the mystery and the mystique of who Jacques is and the fact that Jacques knows everything and also is chess master. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. I'm just trying to wrap my head around exactly how I'm going to pull it off. But I, yeah, just layering more of the, yeah, the master manipulator angle, making it more of like a, a victory for Jacques. This, this, you know, if every scene is like a conflict, especially between these two, really making it clear that Jacques came out a winner this time. Sorry, there's so many Jean and Jacques names. I always have to stop for a second and get it straight in my head. Uh, yeah, I think having Jean feel like he won and, and Jacques actually having won and that being clear is, is kind of cool. And I think if you need some more space in that conversation to put this kind of more layered stuff in, I felt like Jacques was giving out a ton of info about exactly how he plans for him to assault uh, Marie Laveau's place. And this is what you're going to do. You're going to go to this thing, blah, blah, blah. And I think you could take a lot of that out and just let us see that play out later. Just basically tell him this is the goal. He doesn't have to be specific about how he gets in or how well it's defended or that kind of thing. We'll see that later. And you can almost remove all of it, saying the version of uh, Jacques says, get Marie Laveau in this uh, fortress. And Jean says, well, how do you think I'm going to do that? And then Jacques says the bad version of, I kidnapped you to kidnap Marie because I know you're the master kidnapper or whatever. You're the master navigator. So I know your superpower. That's why I kidnapped you. So you don't have to ask me how to do your job. Yeah, I see where you guys are coming from. Just more subtlety in that. Because, yeah, it would be nice to take out. Because that is what I was trying to do is, is, you know, go back to the superpower thing without really show why he's needed. But you're right. That is, I'm a little heavy handed with the execution of that for sure. I'll readdress that. Yeah. The, uh, the last thing that I had on that scene was that Jacques has his comment about how the wound smells infected, but I know in this draft you've changed it. So he only received the wound like 15 minutes ago in that fight in the hall. So it, I don't know if realistically there's enough time for infection to set in, or it's just because he has this crazy vampire smell and we can just kind of write that off. But that was just a, a logic point there. Yeah, I guess uh, I, I figured because I thought about that too, but I figured, uh, yeah, just that he's like so supernatural that he can sense basically like the earliest stages of an infection. But uh, I'd like to hear what you think, Alex, because if the, if you uh, if that felt weird to you too, it's not like a line that I'm dead set on keeping in there. That didn't really bump me. You can play it either way. I, I like the line. I, th- I think that's really cool that you get that vampiric sense and it kind of teases him collapsing it. But I mean, I, I, yeah, I didn't bump on the logic thing, but I think it's probably the kind of thing you can just leave in and, and not think too much about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, okay. That works. It works for me. Less work. <laughs> All right. I had one thought on the final scene of Act 2, scene 29. Uh, and I think you tweaked it so that Bernard is mangled by Jacques' men uh, before Jean sees Bernard and, and Bernard collapses, it, which makes it feel like Jean is not killing Bernard because he has pity for him as opposed to either he knows he's being watched by Jacques or because Jean has a soul and doesn't want to kill a, a man. But either way, I would pitch to remove Bernard being mangled because especially the way the scene is set up, where at the end it's Jack, you know, uh, watching from his office. 
it really sets up Jacques immediately, right? Like the next scene, it sets up Jacques as being not trustworthy because moments ago, Bernard helped Jacques and Jacques butchered him. So Jean has immediately no reason to do anything for Jacques because there's no leverage, right? At this point, like Jacques isn't saying, uh, I'm going to kill your wife if you, you don't do what I'm doing. So Jean still has a free choice of doing whatever he wants. So having Jean make the choice of not killing Bernard, regardless of his position and, and making sure Bernard is fine, he was released, that plays more in my mind. I wonder if you could approach it such that the audience sees what's happened to Bernard, but Jean doesn't. You know, he maybe the bad version is that Jean gets released, he's walking down the alley, sees some dude hunched over, thinks he's a beggar, flips him a coin or whatever. And then as he's walking off, we see that it's Bernard and he's been bled out to death or whatever. So you kind of get the impact of what you were going for, but it doesn't take away from Jean's trust that uh, Jacques is going to do the right thing by him. I like that pitch. Yeah, he thinks he's just some passed out drunk dude, walks by him and then we focus on his face, see what happened. Yeah, I like that. Cool. Yeah, we then we get the stakes of the moment. We understand what could happen to him, but it's sort of, uh, he doesn't know yet. I like the pitch. I would say the potential risk in the read is to think that Jean does recognize Bernard, kind of like as a F you, here's a coin moment. I think you can make it clear in the execution. You know, he sees a hunched over figure in a, a robe or whatever in the gutter and, you know, taking pity on the man, he tosses him a coin, walks off, and then, you know, we kind of like... The camera moves over, we reveal that it's actually Bernard, you know? I think it's a way to make it work. All right, let's move on to Act 3 and the Scene 31, the first scene we have between Pierre and Louise, as it is revealed that Louise and Pierre are lovers behind Jean's back. I was missing a little bit of tension there between Louise and Pierre in the context of Jean being back, and specifically that contrasting with the fake news that were spread about Jean and the, you know, what it means for him to be back in a more actionable way. Not necessarily, I mean, obviously about their relationship for sure, but also just what it means that he's back, uh, especially because potentially they would have different opinions about him, especially if Louise believes or partly believes of the fake news about Jean being a horrible person and Pierre doesn't because he's his brother. Having that tension play out as like the first layer or the second layer. And then that also translating to them having a, you know, couple fight, a loving couple, not two fights. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a dynamic. I hadn't thought to introduce in that scene, but that makes sense of carrying that thread of the the stories and the tarnished legacy into the, their scene. I like that. Yeah, for sure. I think there's something nice in kind of having his brother standing up for him and having to try and convince her that he's not all bad or you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think that's aided by this, rewrite already because the dynamics were kind of similar in the first draft and now their dynamics with both their dynamics with Jean are a little bit more distinctive, I think. So yeah, putting them at odds ups the drama a little bit. Yeah. I think it actually helps make the payoff even stronger too. when we find out that it was Louise that kind of saved him from Laveau uh, at the end too. Like even oh, though, yeah. you know, that's e- great. even though she thinks that he's a criminal and all this stuff, you know, just because Pierre was able to convince her and yeah, I think her doing something for someone that she doesn't like and doesn't trust is much more powerful. Yeah, I like it. Great. And one tiny note also in that scene on page 39 and 40 specifically, I would move up Louise's reaction in the closet to Jean saying he's kidnapping someone and sort of cutting that to Louise's reaction as opposed to us seeing Louise reacting to Marie specifically. Uh, although maybe at this point, we don't really know who Marie is, but we should leave it ambiguous, especially because we don't know theoretically that they're connected. Just leading the audience to thinking that Louise is reacting to the kidnapping as opposed to Marie. Yeah, I see that. So it's just to kind of hide that thread a little bit more. 
hiding the ball. And also, as we just mentioned, uh, it really heightens the fact that, oh my God, Jean is back to his old ways of <laughs> yeah. kidnapping someone. He's been back for one day. He's already <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 I get you. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's move on to Jean and Marchand, Jean landing on the ship of the mercenaries. Uh, I had a, a couple of sort of larger thoughts. One was Marchand's reactions vis-a-vis -vis Jean and, and sort of Jean, or rather Marchand, immediately deflating seconds after being put aside by Jean. Uh, it felt a bit cartoony in a way where you have sort of the, the men cheering after Marchand and then a second ago he's pulled aside by Jean and then Marchand says, oh, I'm so sorry for the show. That was just for the guys. That felt a bit too cartoony for me in the sense that Jean would be the one deducing that Marchand is faking it, as opposed to Marchand copying out immediately. Uh, it'd be sort of, uh, you know, Jean being smarter than Marchand. Yeah, the switch does happen pretty fast there. So I, I could see why that would, why you get snagged up on that a little bit. So yeah, I'll take, I'll take another look at that. I would also say like tying to that, uh, that, you can streamline once again a lot of that back and forth about the plan of attack and so forth. I think a lot of it is interesting, but I mean, I'm someone who any piece of dialogue that's over three lines, I cut 90% of the time uh, just because I think it's important to be lean and mean in the, in the pilot just for the read. But with that said, I did like the play between Marchand and Jean. And so to conserve that, I feel like to heighten what is going on logistically, I think that you can have it where... You know, in the scene where Jean uh, arrives uh, on the ship, he is being ridiculed. That's when the captain shuts him down. And so in that scene, Jean merely deciphers that Marchand is actually a secret coward, which leads him to scene 34 when he does what he wants on the ship, thereby revealing to us, the audience and Marchand, that Jean knows that Marchand is a fool. And then scene 35 is when Marchand allegedly comes around, but then later betrays Jean. So I, 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 that way you kind of collapse everything. You don't have to really go into the logistics of it uh, so long. And just to uh, shade it a little bit more in terms of why Jean is behaving the way he is, I kind of wanted also a bit more PTSD, if it were, of Jean once again being doubted by someone or some kind of dynamic there. It doesn't have to be big, but I think there's something there to mirror the teaser and especially the dynamic between the captain and who's not a captain. Yeah, that's an interesting thought to kind of bookend it a little bit there. I'm going to think about that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, my main note on Act 3 was just that I really liked what you've done with the new ending there. I think it's a much stronger moment instead of him just kind of, you know, feeling helpless and unable to get into this thing and them kind of abandoning him and heading off to do the attack on their own, I think is a really nice kind of all is lost type moment for him at the end of the act. I think that was Nick's pitch. So I'm just loving when you guys are singling out your ideas. Is <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I pitched specifically to do that. I think, I think, I think I just said that I just wanted to be honest, honest. But <laughs> I don't want to. No, but to that point, I definitely agree with Nick. I, I will say one small tweak on scene 40 or thereabouts. I would just land harder in the same way that in the teaser, uh, I was hoping to for you to land harder the emotion of Jean feeling betrayed by Mauricio. This is another opportunity where, especially if you see that PTSD or something like that, th there should be a moment where we really, really feel Jean is effed and everything is lost. And there is a clock, presumably, if we understand that imminently the ship is moving to attack at any moment. And now there's a clock and Jean is betrayed. And uh, it's like history repeating itself almost. Yeah, I think that moment would probably be the schooner itself has to move because I think at the very end of the teaser, I mentioned that he watches his ship sail away without him. So I think that would probably be the most applicable kind of moment there. Because right now I think I have like the like the rowboat going back 
but not the schooner itself moving. So if, if that happens too, then I think that would hammer that home a little bit. Yeah, I agree on that. All right, uh, moving on to Act 4. Jumping straight into uh, scene 47 with Agwe and Marie and, and Jean and so forth, I would collapse scene 46 into scene 47 so that we stay with Jean's perspective all the way through until he sees Marie and Agwe interacting and then he kind of steps into that scene. Collapsing 46 into 47? Yeah, so that we stay, especially because the act begins with Jean and he his journey is getting to Marie. So cutting away to Marie, who at this point we don't know, right? right. We know the terror, but we don't really know, as opposed to Jean seeing her. Right. And then in the prose, you can say, uh, obviously Jean doesn't know she's the terror reader, but in the prose, that's when you say a version of... He sees Marie. It's the terror reader that Louise was talking to earlier or whatever. Right. So um, just, and so that way you connect the dots. Yeah. Just doubling down more on, on keeping it Jean's POV. I gotcha. Because after that, it splits, right? After they interact. But up yeah. until the moment they connect, that's when, you know, I feel like it should be more Jean's perspective to really, because that's his mission. That's not really Mary's mission. Yeah. I hear you. That, that makes sense. And I will just say that I really love the interaction that you added between <laughs> i feel like i'm just <laughs> praising my own pitches there but uh <laughs> i did actually enjoy the thing that you added with murray said oh uh, you're early and then that's when <laughs> the cannon fires i thought that was really cool yeah yeah well of course you would <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i will say overall i really liked the sense of urgency and immediacy and uh uh, actionable action that you had throughout that sequence uh, that was really well done and i know because you you didn't mention in actually your update uh that um it was a struggle to cut out the action sequences and sort of the big battle stuff i feel like you can still bring back some of that spectacle if you want through as long as it's from you know jean's perspective whatever especially in those scenes where jean watches out from the window or is in the middle of it so um, you can still put that back in or to some extent. Yeah, I had the same note there. I think that overall the sequence feels a lot tighter and I like keeping us in, in Sean's POV. But if there were some favorite kind of pieces of yours from what the pirates were doing, uh, you can find a way to, to pull this back in. Yeah, well, you guys know me. I'm always looking to up the gore factor. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll throw a couple <laughs> horrible deaths back in there. On page 52 in the middle of the fight, I would also keep alive the wound that Jean has and that tying that to how he is becoming weaker and weaker. So at least we keep that alive uh, so that it pays off later. Yeah. I think there's room for that. Like at the top of page 52, like that second line, just to yeah. once again, say it like that. I think that's what I was going for there with the more like the tiring out, but really double down that it's the, the infection that's causing the accelerated. Yeah. It's like he winces and touches his abdomen or <laughs> that's right. a bad pitch. But you know what I'm saying? No, yeah, I get you. Yeah, for sure. On that same page too, I wanted to kind of talk about uh, the Agwe death, which was one thing that you mentioned in your update and it was something that we'd given you a note on last time, but you decided to kind of still keep in and keep the same. I mean, I guess I'll just throw it to you first. What was your kind of thinking behind uh, wanting to keep that in? I just really felt like somebody that we knew and had spent a little bit of time on had to go. And then since we know that Marie is supernatural or we feel that she might be supernatural to some degree and have like these powers of premonition, I feel like she kind of knows what she's doing to Agwe when she tells him to stop, almost sacrificing him in exchange for Jean's life, which kind of adds some value to Jean and maybe she sees something in his future. And those aren't necessarily all in the text, which isn't good, but it's like, that's kind of part of my thinking on it. 
And I tried to rework the scene a couple different ways. Once with Creedy, who is Marshawn's first mate, kind of taking his place and having Creedy follow Jean after Marie, but he kind of got fed up and was just going to kill Marie. And that put him in conflict with Jean, who was tasked with bringing her back alive. And then that would sort of put him in Ogwe's place. Trying to work all that in, it started ballooning that scene out like like it added an extra two pages or something. So that's something I think I, it's still on the table for me reworking that, but I just need maybe a little bit more time to like, look at it. Yeah. I actually picked up on what you just said about, you know, it's suggesting that Marie purposefully let Agwe die to save Jean because she has those uh, precognition powers implied. Uh, but to me, that's actually a red flag. That's not something good because that means that one POC traded another POC's life to save the white dude. And just to put it kind of like very succinctly and Within the context of, especially because we talk about slavery and all those different issues, I, I feel like this is a huge, huge question mark. But in terms of a solve, I mean, um, in my mind, you can just simplify it where you have red shirt number one or unnamed soldier or whatever version of that exists introduced there. They're like in the, the guard of Marie's guard. They're th there and we don't necessarily need to know their name, but you know, you can still give them lines and so forth, but them having them die or something, I would say Marie saving Agwe to me is much more compelling than <laughs> Marie letting Agwe die for Jean's sake. Yeah, I, those are all good points. And it just goes to show that like how much of a blind spot you can have when you're doing these things. Cause I didn't even really consider that, uh, that angle of it. Um, but yeah. And um, the, the, the guard thing I had considered, I just wanted it to be a named person, but again, it's one of those things that I feel like you guys seem to have stronger opinions on it than I do. And it's sort of like with my wife, it's like, if you really care about something and I don't care that much about it, I'm going <laughs> to do it your way. And that's like, so I get it. So that's something I'm, I'll go back and change that. Yeah, I think you mentioned uh, potentially killing Marchand. I think that that would be uh, a really fun kind of scene or thing to do to have that payoff of like, oh, everybody hated this jerk. And now we get to kind of see how he meets his end. You know, obviously we, they have the bit where the, the ship gets blown up and everything. And we just assume that he's dead. But if you want to specifically show him kind of get cut down in battle or exploded or whatever, and John has his Marchand, you fool kind of line that might be interesting. Yeah, that was another, uh, I think I said that in the solo update, that it was Creedy and Marshawn that I kind of tried it both ways. The only problem I, I ran into with the Marshawn thing is I, I feel like he's such a coward, he wouldn't have even made it that far. But it, it could still work. It's just a matter of execution. So, And it would be fun to see him, because that, that's um, probably the scene I missed the most out of everything I cut, was Marshawn getting his comeuppance. So mm -hmm. it would be nice to put that back in. Yeah, maybe he jumps off the ship and starts swimming away and he gets eaten by an alligator or something. <laughs> gets captain hooked literally <laughs> and that's the post credit sequence as you see a hook coming out of the alligators <laughs> alright let's drop into towards the end now of uh, act 4 uh, I just had sort of a small kind of comment about the transition between the end of scene 51, 52, 53 I thought you could make it slightly punchier in the prose to go from one scene to the other especially with Jean succumbing to his infection, collapsing, and then getting tied to a stretcher and uh, his eyes fluttering open. I think there's something a bit more dynamic there that you could do in the purse to get us to sort of the, the final scene with him seeing all the visions. Yeah, structurally, I like that you pulled that stuff into the end of this act. I think it makes for a nice kind of moment there. But yeah, I agree with Alex. There's maybe a little bit more we could do there. 
Yeah, I see that. It's yeah, just um, kind of let it flow a little bit better. All right, uh, let's jump into Act Five. We're in the end game now. And uh, a small note on Scene Fifty Five. I really, really like a lot of what you did here with Jean Marie. I thought it was really, really well done. Uh, one small comment on when Marie says. Any hallucinations you suffered were surely the result of your fever. I wasn't quite sure why she would dismiss what Jean saw and basically what she was doing there, especially because, you know, voodoo and her beliefs are seeing grains of her character. So I wasn't clear why she would just kind of gaslight him into it was just hallucinations. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it might even be more fun if she like feeds into it a little bit more that like, yeah, you saw something, but then she leaves it vague. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank yeah. You. Maybe, maybe the what you see tells a lot about who you are. It's kind of like a walkabout. Maybe she could hint that she helped like expunge those things from him, or um, something like that. But yeah, oh, I, interesting. I like that. Excising his demons. Yeah. yeah, I think you could lean into the the theme and stuff there. That it's a, a purification ritual. You know, giving him a cleansing and a rebirth sort of thing again, tying into that. Yeah. Uh, I dig it. Yeah, I just have also another small thought on page 57 when uh, Jean grabs a knife. I wonder, uh, again, logistically, I don't know if it works, but I wonder if what he grabs is actually his signature weapon. And again, it depends on what you're doing in the episode now with a signature weapon. But to kind of still go full circle with him, uh, reminding us that he has a signature weapon, but also implying that Marie allowed Jean to keep his signature weapon, which is completely different than the way Jacques received Jean. Yeah, that makes sense because, I mean, logically, it would it even makes sense for the dagger to be there if they took it off his person or whatever. Imagine they keep all his crap together. When the, or, I forgot I'm not allowed to cuss. I guess crap, crap's not that bad, right? <laughs> yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that totally hammers home the signature weapon thing and the implication that Marie is sort of almost baiting him with it to see what he's going to do. So, yeah, I like that. Yeah, I just wanted to say in scene 58, uh, I liked the dynamic between Mauricio and Jacques. It felt, you know, the last two drafts, I kind of had that comment that it didn't feel like there was a lot of purpose to the scene, but I think this one felt a lot more, there's a lot more genuine conflict and purpose, and it helps really up the stakes uh, and establish the dynamic better. Yeah, I definitely agree. I feel like overall, especially in this draft, uh, despite everything we said about, you know, t- cutting back on some dialogue and so forth, overall, the dynamics between the characters are very clear and are very compelling, which is, uh, you know, always interesting to see. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you guys say that because this was one of those ones where I know Nick was really struggling with this scene for the first draft and even in like the inception phase. So I'm glad to hear that. And I also liked uh, sort of hinting at, I think it added in a little bit more of the Jacques manipulating Mauricio. Mauricio saying that he'll burn the whole town down and Jacques kind of saying cheekily like, oh, I believe you, almost like he wants it. So yeah, I had fun with that one. So uh, anyway, I'm rambling, but I'm glad you guys liked it. All right, let's move on to the end of the episode, the end of the pilot. And uh, I had one thought, uh, one uh, big uh, note that ties back to something we've uh, discussed at the top of this episode, kind of full circle. Uh, We talked about withholding the title of Captain uh, vis-a-vis Jean, that no one after the teaser calls him Captain. But what if in the very last line of this episode, Pierre, his brother, at long last, calls him Captain? As in, you won't have to do it alone, comma, Captain. And at least it shows a little bit of brotherhood and that now he's starting to build his crew back up. He has one person on his team. I like it. Yeah, that that definitely ties it together. It has a bigger payoff. And yeah, uh, that's cool. Yeah. No, I like that pitch. I think that's really cool. One thought that I had on there was 
potentially flipping that line a little bit earlier and then taking his other line about, I'm going to finish what I started, take back my city, set the story straight. I'm going to mean something to the city again as more of like the final line. I mean, maybe now that we have the captain thing, maybe the last line can work, but it just felt like a little bit more pressing into the theme to end on the line about his new beginning and reclaiming his legacy and that sort of thing. You know, my note last time was that it wasn't about whether or not he was alone or abandoned. You know, it's obviously part of it, but that's not the core theme of everything. So I just felt like perhaps having something that uh, directly ties into the, the core theme about rebirth, reclaiming your, your legacy, all that sort of thing should be the last line of the pilot, but open to discussion with you guys. I actually had that same thought, Nick. I ended up going with this version because I also sort of wanted to end on like a success for Jean. And his success is his crew has reformed. Like it's just one dude. It's just his brother, but like he's on board now. So that was like his final little win of the whole episode. But I also like the theme of the story being the last line. So I really could go either way on it. I think Alex has pitched with adding the captain to the last line. Like you said, Nick, I think that does help strengthen that one. So, but like I said, I can go either way. What do you think, Alex? I like both ideas. In my mind, it really comes down to what you want to end the episode on. If you want to end on that win, that sort of a, we've accomplished step one. Uh, so that would be, you know, you won't have to do it alone. But if it's much more of almost like a to be continued of like a, a thesis statement of this is the next step, then Jean's line makes more sense. So it kind of depends on what you want to end the episode on. Yeah, I think this is another one. I'm just going to write it both ways and see what sticks, which one really jumps out at me. Yeah, well, great work overall. I think that uh, this is a lot tighter and a, a lot, uh, you know, there's a lot more layers to it. And just, yeah, with a couple more little polishes, I think you'll be in a really, really great spot. Absolutely. This was awesome to read. Thank you so much for sending us this draft. Yeah, guys, I, I appreciate it. And it was so interesting doing this whole process. Um, I've never gotten notes while I was actually writing something before. I know you guys always talk about the importance of like writers groups and things. And I'm just such a solitary person. I've never put myself out there to have this kind of experience. So it's been really interesting to get notes and then fix it and get notes and fix it rather than just getting a big dump of notes on what is basically a final draft. So it's been cool and it's been educational. So thanks you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Do you find that, do you like this process better? Do they both have their pros and cons? How does it work for you? I absolutely like this process better, but that kind of comes with a caveat that I trust your guys' opinions. And in this process, I came in with the idea that I'm going to play ball and really try to take the notes and really, really think about them and try to implement as many as I can because I'm trying to learn from you guys. So if I found a quality writers group with writers whose opinions I trusted as much as your guys's, it would be great. But you know, I haven't even started looking yet. So I don't know how many great writers groups there are out there. So if any listeners are in one that, that they'd like to send me recommendations, that'd be great too. Yeah, especially now with everybody working from home and so forth, I feel there's a lot more uh, democratization. You can hold a writing group pretty much anywhere with anyone around the country or the world. So uh, as far as the next step in this process, uh, we wanted to let you know what we were thinking, and then maybe you can kind of give us your opinion. But we're thinking that obviously we've been through a few drafts now, giving feedback on air, and that you can kind of get diminishing returns after a while. So we were thinking maybe you could take the polishes and changes from today, go and implement what you feel is useful. But the next session that we're going to do on air is actually more about talking 
strategy. I think a lot of our uh, listeners have that question of what do you do once you have a great pilot and you want to get it out into the world? How do you get people to read it? How do you potentially get people attached, get it sold, get it put into development, use it to attract reps, get attention, all that sort of thing. So maybe we can have a bit more of a strategy session uh, with you rather than jumping back into the the pages again. Yeah, I think that would be great because I think that's certainly something I, I know very little about. I mean, I've read all the blogs and articles and stuff, but actually putting it into execution hasn't been super successful so far. So yeah, uh, I'm in. Absolutely. That's awesome. And uh, especially seeing a pilot, I think that's the ultimate sort of a process, the mentorship, as we said at the top, it's always been going from uh, an idea pitch to a final draft and, and perhaps more. And this is something that we, you know, we never were able to do with Paul because Paul, <laughs> Paul did his own little uh, journey. But uh, in this case, I think it's really important to sort of see it through and discuss practically speaking there's a reason why you are writing a pilot, right? It's not because necessarily you're going to produce it uh, because you're not there yet, but it's also not just because you want it to be on your computer. You want it to be spread. You want it to serve as a sample for you and a calling card. So uh, just discussing strategy and the practical usefulness of a sample and how to take the parking elsewhere will be awesome to discuss. Yeah, I'm excited. All right. Well, before we go, don't forget that we are on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get access to our Paper Patron podcast, our cheat sheets, uh, all sorts of exclusive content and fun things there just for our Patreon supporters. So you can get on this at paperteam.co slash Patreon, and we'll keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. And thank you so much, Ben, for your hard work uh, through this whole process. Thank you, guys. It's been great. It's been awesome to have you on. And uh, our listeners can get the show notes for this episode, in particular, the second revised draft for the parking at paperteam.co slash 204. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Uh, ben? I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Just look me up through the Paper Team Facebook page. I'll, I'll, I'm on there. All right. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for this mentorship or future ones, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Next week will be our first paper scraps of the new year. So that's our January 2021 paper scraps. Tune in for answers to your TV writing questions, news around the industry, and all that other good stuff. All right. See you next week. We'll catch you then.